This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So now I can breathe a sigh of relief. When someone has known you since you were 15 years old, you're always a little nervous when they introduce you. But I remember that day so well because Crystal was so friendly and she wasn't yet Dr. Lucky, but those of you who know her know that Dr. Lucky or a 14-year-old Crystal Jones um, would greet you with the most beautiful smile and warm spirit and, and a voice like an angel. So I'm glad to call her friend and I'm very thrilled that she asked me to come speak with you today. Um, I am going to, first I have to just confess that this is a PowerPoint that I made on a Mac and as we transferred it over to this computer, it's doing odd things. But you'll still, you'll get the gist of it. You'll see the right images. Um, some things might be a little upside down, but I'll, I'll warn you beforehand about that. Um, I want to start with a quotation. The title of the talk is In Sound and Word, Black Women Artists and the Work of Freedom. And it really could be, you'll find out later, it could be in sound, word, and movement. Um, but that will become clear later on. So I'll start with a quotation. In the beginning, there were no words in the beginning was the sound, and they all knew what that sound sounded like. This explicit challenge to the biblical assertion, in the beginning was the word, comes from one of our greatest wordsmiths, Toni Morrison, in her classic novel, Beloved. If you know Beloved, it's the um, very, very end of the novel where a group of African-American women come and they sing to the ghosts of Beloved, and this is what she says about what's about to happen, that the sound is at the beginning. Um, instead of the word at the beginning, a universe of sound. Imagine birds, wind, water, and quite possibly, eventually, the human voice, a woman's voice, that first voice that we all hear in the womb. Um, and depending on the teller of the tale, a black woman's voice. Their historians, um, Shane and Shane White and Graham White, have a wonderful book called *The Sound of Slavery*. The sounds of slavery, and they assert that early America was filled with a soundscape made up of black voices, um, particularly in the South. The soundscape of people singing um, as they worked in the fields that we have to consider as one of the founding sounds of our nation the sound of black singing, and particularly that of African-American women. But one of the things that I'm interested in is the way that that voice sits at the beginning and at some of the most pivotal points in African-American cultural history. I don't have time to outline that for you today, but I'll give you a very quick run-through of what I mean. That voice not only expressed the conditions of slavery and enslavement and oppression, but also um, a longing for and a sort of attempt to represent freedom. So those of you who are familiar with Frederick Douglass's slave narrative of 1845, think about Douglass describing his Aunt Hagar's scream at the opening of that as he witnesses her beating. He listens to her screams and he says that this moment of trauma is what helps him enter into a kind of understanding of, of slavery and of his own enslavement, as well as the beginning of his disdain for the institution and his own quest for freedom. Or think about Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk, who in that chapter about the sorrow songs, um, the African-American spirituals, the tradition of the spirituals, he recalls his grandmother, a great-great-grandmother, who he says sang in an unknown tongue and that her singing is the source of his understanding, first of the meaning of the sorrow songs, the meaning of the spirituals, but also a meaning of the souls of black folk. And I'll bear with me, this is the quotation from Du Bois. He says, my grandfather's grandmother was seized by an evil Dutch trader two centuries ago and coming to the valleys of the Hudson and the Housatonic, black, little, and leith, she shivered and shrank in the harsh north winds look longingly at the hills and often crooned a heathen melody to a child between her knees. Du banakoba jenny may, jenny may, du banakoba jenny may, jenny may, bind nuli 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 bindele. Now linguists have not been able to locate 
the lyrics within a Bantu language group as it was first thought that's where they belonged. But um, Du Bois's um, biographer, David Levering Lewis, says the closest translation seems to come from a Wolof song out of the Senegambia region of West Africa, and that it would be a song of captivity and confinement. Jenny me, Jenny me, get me out, get me out, get me out. A call for freedom, a song of captivity. So here we have in these two pivotal texts of kind of African-American literature, the moment of a kind of consciousness, the beginning, not, not quite a political consciousness yet, but a consciousness of their own condition is initiated by the sound or the remembrance of a sound of a black woman's voice that we don't have access to. It's only represented for us through the writing of these men. And it's not just the literary tradition, it's the musical tradition as well. Um, Think about someone like Miles Davis. If you know Miles Davis's music, he has a very haunting trumpet sound that is immediately recognizable. And Miles Davis says, before my music lessons, I remember how music used to sound down there in Arkansas when I was visiting my grandfather, especially at the Saturday night church. And then because I'm not going to um, use his profane language, I will translate for you what he says. Um, Man that mm, was a mm-mm. <laughs> I guess I was about six or seven. We'd be walking on those dark country roads at night and all of a sudden this music would seem to come out of nowhere, out of them spooky looking trees that everybody said ghosts lived in. And I remember a man and a woman singing. That music was something, especially that woman singing. And I think it's this kind of sound in the music, the blues, the church, the back road funk kind of thing, that southern midwestern rural sound and rhythm and that woman, I think it started getting into my blood on those spook-filled Arkansas back roads after dark when the owls came out hooting. And when I started making music, taking music lessons, I think I already had some idea of what I wanted my music to sound like. Music is a funny thing when you think about it because it's hard to pinpoint where it all began for me but I think it all had to have started out on that Arkansas road. So a black woman's voice is the sound that informs, um, you know, Miles Davis's trumpet. Now, I've written at length about the centrality of black women singing voices um, as a founding sound of our nation and of black modernity, and so I'm not going to go into that here, and we can talk about that in question and answer, and I can point you to that. And there's also a wonderful new book out by a woman named Emily Roboto called Black Resonance um, that picks up on some of that work. And so um, I, I, I recommend you look at that. But by turning to black women artists today at two moments in our nation's history, um, I would say in the history of the United States, but the first moment is before we even become the United States. Um, it's a moment when we're seeking to, to define ourselves as a kind of bastion of um, freedom and democracy. But by turning to these two moments, um, turning particularly to the voices of black women, the, the writerly voices of black women and the musical voices, um, I want to suggest that they consistently provide a cogent critique and challenge as well as a contribution to our project of creating a democracy. So let us turn to a beginning, not the beginning, but a beginning. An African girl child concerned herself with questions of religion, democracy, and freedom. Phyllis Wheatley was believed to have been born in the Senegambia region of West Africa. She arrived in Massachusetts in 1761 on a slave ship. She was purchased by John Wheatley as a personal servant for his wife. Um, we do not know what name she answered to before arriving in Massachusetts, but her owners named her after the ship that she came on, um, the Phyllis, and so she was named Phyllis for the ship and Wheatley for her new owners. Uh, they didn't know how old she was. They estimated that she was perhaps seven years old because she was missing her two front teeth, which might suggest that she was even younger. Uh, within a few years, two or three years, the young girl who did not speak English was fluent in English and became adept at learning Latin and Greek. And her owners, the Wheatleys, recognized her intellectual gifts, and because she was a, was a sickly child, they turned her over to their daughter, Susanna, who actually educated her. Um, she didn't work 
in the harsh conditions of most um, enslaved people. So Susanna supervised the child's education. I suspect that Susanna was an early feminist because she taught this young woman based on the curriculum that was really only available to men, to boy, young boys at the time. And she taught her theology, English, Latin, Greek, ancient history, mythology, and literature. A favorite was Alexander Pope. The young Wheatley would publish her first poem at the age of 12, and her first volume of poems, poetry, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, in 1773. She was a child prodigy. And at this time, she enters into a discursive landscape. If you think about what's happening in 1773, it's right before the War for Independence, and there's a discursive landscape where, where the colonies are talking, right? And the sort of ideas of the Enlightenment that would lead to the Declaration of Independence are in the air. She's in Boston, she's in New England. Um, the Wheatleys are a very well-to-do family. She's exposed to all of these ideas. She is most known for her most famous poem on being brought from Africa to America, which appears to celebrate her kidnapping and her enslavement as an act of mercy because they introduced her to Christ. And this is the grounds upon which she enters into the public sphere. She does so by accepting a central tenet of the white supremacist society in which she lives. And here's the poem, it's a, it's a fairly short one, you probably have heard it. Twas mercy bought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once redemption, once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our race, sable race with a scornful eye, quote, their color is a diabolic dye, end quote. But remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. Now, this poem has been the subject of controversy because it finds mercy in her kidnapping and enslavement and her conversion, but it also uses this as a foundation to justify her equality with her captors and then to gently admonish them to recognize all black people as children of God, right? So there's a certain kind of reasoning that she accepts in order that she can enter into the discourse as an equal. She accepts her master's religion and reasoning in order to, pre to present the case for black humanity. But Wheatley didn't just write that poem. She wrote a number of lesser known poems that I think are equally important when we consider her legacy at the beginning of the African-American literary tradition and at the beginning of the American literary tradition. As a child, she, uh, she was not just a blank slate that was completely shaped by the conditions of slavery. She, for instance, recalled her mother waking up in the morning, um, performing a ritual of pouring water before the sun as it rose. And it's speculated that maybe her mother was already a Muslim or that perhaps she was engaged in pouring libations for the ancestors. But this is her first spiritual practice that Wheatley recalls. And in another poem, she actually mentions her father this is a poem written, long title, to the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, His Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for North America, comma, et cetera. <laughs> and it was written for the Lord of Dartmouth, who was appointed secretary in charge of the American colonies in 1772, and he was believed to be a friend of the colonies. So it was considered a good thing. And she had hoped that he would prove to be um, more amenable to the grievances of the colonies. So in her celebration of him, she writes of freedom for the colonies, and she uses imagery of slavery, um, which was the imagery that everyone was using at the time, right? She uses imagery of slavery, and she says, because of him, no more in America, in colonies, I'm sorry, no more America in mournful strain of wrongs and grievances unredressed complain. No longer shalt thou dread the iron chain which wanton tyranny with lawless hand handmade and with meat enslave the land, right? So she's using the same kind of language that we will see um, Jefferson use eventually about the enslavement of the colonies. But then later in the poem, she says, should you my Lord, while you pursue my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung? Right? Why do I, this girl, get to talk to you about freedom and slavery? And here's what she says, I, 
Young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afrique's fancy happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breasts. Steels that was soul and by no misery moved, steel, steel that was soul and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such is my case. And can I then but pray that others may never feel tyrannic sway. So she uses her very condition of slavery to say that she, these are the reasons why she is in support of you know, the freedom, freedom for the colonies. She claims the moral authority to fight against slavery, tyranny, and injustice. Um, and there are a number of things like this in letters uh, that she wrote um, and, and other poems. So I think that instead of thinking of her as an apologist for slavery, we should consider her, along with David Walker and Frederick Douglass, as a progenitor of a kind of critique and challenge to America's relationship to its professed ideals of democracy. And this is a project that is a project of many African-American thinkers, but we rarely think of women as participating in this project. When we think of women artists, we think about them primarily being concerned with gender, and we tend to only talk about them when we want to talk about gender, which is important, right? Um, and when we, when we want to talk about women's roles and women's places, but that's not all they talked about. And one of the reasons why they talked about that was because of their investment in these large ideas about freedom and independence. So I'm going to skip over many centuries, <laughs> not too many, but a few centuries, to say that um, when I began to think about the three women artists about whom I write in my most recent book, I was struck by the way that they also were concerned with these same questions, these same preoccupations. And they all were very interested in gender, but they were not only concerned about gender. All seemed to be interested in broadening the expanse of democracy and freedom to cons include concerns that have to do with economic security, as well as freedom from racial and gender oppression. And so I want to turn to them now. In writing about them, I wanted to illuminate another time, just as Petrie, Petrie, just as Wheatley spoke to her time, and I think the fact that um, the colonies were kind of undergoing this transition and this fight, um, it allowed a space for her to enter and to speak about these issues of democracy and freedom. Um, similarly, the women about whom I wrote most recently used the opportunity provided by World War II to do the same thing. So World War II was the good war, right? It was the war against fascism. It was the war for democracy. Um, and these women, along with many, many others, said, well, this will be an interesting opportunity to, one, join the cause of the war, right, that we have to fight this war, but to also use this opportunity to push our nation on places where it's failing in terms of democracy practiced at home. The larger project was um, called the Double V, the Victory Abroad and Victory at Home um, uh, sort of campaign organized primarily by African-American newspapers, but also um, political organizers and, and artists as well. So these moments in our nation's history that in some ways are a moment of crisis but also a moment of possibility that allow these women, afford these women a um, opportunity to press their demands as well. World War II was one such moment. Um, and it was a moment before a very drastic narrowing of what might have been possible, a kind of silencing of dissent that would occur at the end of the 1940s. Uh, I choose here to talk about artists rather than activists in a more conventional sense, primarily because I'm a cultural critic and a cultural historian, but also because I agree with Cornel West, who says that there is a deep public reverence for even a love of democracy in America, and there's a deep tradition and that the love of this tradition has been most powerfully expressed and pushed forward by our great public intellectuals and artists, whether they be Walt Whitman or James Baldwin. And I'd like to add to that connection three women. Some of you might have heard of some of them. Um, the dancer, Pearl Primus. Now, in my original Mac version, Pearl Primus is on top. That The word is on top and the picture is on the bottom. So just flip it in your mind. Okay, Pearl Primus. The writer, Anne Petrie, and the composer, Mary Lou Williams. 
Um, and if there's time, I hope we, we get to Williams at the end as well. Each of these women in the 1940s is producing art. They're actively engaged in progressive politics. They're all working very hard to merge their aesthetic and their political interests. Um, and they're also intellectuals who are critically engaged in questions about their chosen art form. Each sought to expand the contours of the American ideal of democracy to include the most marginalized people, and each commented upon and critiqued the limited practice of American democracy. All three women were recognized by their peers. We don't really know their names today, but in the 1940s, they got a lot of attention. They were reviewed widely in the Times. People knew who they were. Anne Petrie's um, novel, first novel, The Street, sold 1.5 million copies. It was the first million seller by an African-American woman. Mary Lou Williams um, arranged for Benny Goodman and for Duke Ellington, the greatest kind of you know swing bands, most popular swing bands of the day. So they all received a lot of attention in the, the early 1940s. Um, this would change by the decades in. By that time, um, I think their experiences demonstrated the way that both a kind of change in politics and aesthetic sensibilities would foreclose the possibilities that were available to them. And by the 1950s, all of them had left New York. Petrie went back to Connecticut where she was from. Pearl Primus went to Africa and returned to find that she was under investigation by the FBI. And Williams stayed in um, Europe for, th for two or three years um, where she converted to Catholicism and when she came back devoted much of her time to her practice, her religious practice, including her music. But uh, for our period, they are very, very active and very engaged. And I like to think of them as part of what the philosopher Richard Rorty refers to as the reformist left. He says, um, Reformist left were all of those Americans who between 1900 and 1964 struggled within the framework of constitutional democracy to protect the weak from the strong. And it includes lots of people, he said, who called themselves communists and socialists and lots of others who never dreamed of calling themselves any of the, those things. Um, and I think that that's true with, with these three women. For instance, um, Ann Petrie was a lifelong member of the Republican Party and ran for um, ran for public office, the school board in her hometown, as a Republican, right? But um, she was still someone who was very much concerned with kind of what, what our nation could do for the most poor members of, 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 of our citizenry. Um, they were all, they were all um, using their art forms as a way to express their political concerns. Mary Lou Williams, I think out of the three of them, Pearl Primus was probably the most obviously, obvious what we would call politically engaged, right? And she made political statements all the time. And Mary Lou Williams, I think, to the extent that she was politically involved, her politics were really driven by her sort of spiritual quest, her sense of right and wrong and how it is our spiritual obligation to protect the least of these. And so that's, she was more, it was, it was more that than it was an actual conventional political um, involvement. So I'll start with Primus, who is not word or sound, but actually movement. Um, this is a picture of Pearl Primus at a freedom rally, a Negro freedom rally. Um, I told you about the double V campaigns. The double V campaigns would organize these big rallies that were these sort of patriotic rallies in support of the war cause and they sold war bonds and they gave out awards to Miss War Industry Worker. <laughs> um, they also were trying to fight against segregation in the military. Um, they were organizing for what would have been the first march on Washington, which was actually organized by A. Philip Randolph in the 1940s. And thousands and thousands of people attended them. They were at Madison Square Garden. So this is actually a picture of her at the 19, uh, <coughs> it might be the, I don't think this is the 1943 rally. She danced at two of them. But it's the only pictures that we have. And you can see how many people attended them. So at the 1943 Negro Freedom Rally, <coughs> excuse me, in Madison Square Garden, um, the audience was introduced to a new modern, young modern dancer. Uh, she danced two pieces to the accompaniment of Josh White's songs, um, Hard Time Blues, and a song called Jim Crow Train. We have to remember this is during a time when our country was still segregated, and if you went, once you crossed the Mason-Dixon line, 
the trains became segregated, and so there was a colored car and a white car, and so they were called the Jim Crow cars. So she did a dance to um, Jim Crow Train. Both of her dances were songs, dances of social protest. With Jim Crow Train, she carried her audience's frustrations and aspirations with her in her body. She would dance the confining, stifling nature of segregation, and then she leapt high above the bleachers, right out of the imagined train. She had trained as an athlete, um, and she could jump five feet in the air. It was a leap of frustration, of anger, and protest. But when finally she flew, she took her audience with her. Through physical movement, she sought to inspire social and political movement. In his Chicago Defender column, the revered poet Langston Hughes wrote, every time she leaped, folks felt like shouting. Some did, some hollered out loud. On this night, Primus began to live out her calling to use the language of dance to represent the dignity and strength of her people and to express their longing for freedom. In the 1940s, she saw dance as a means of contributing to an ongoing struggle for social justice. She learned that a dancer's movement had the power to transform the observer's consciousness, and this would be a central component of the aesthetic that informed her practice. She inherited this from a tradition of vernacular dance born of Africa, and one that was also central to modern dance itself. In fact, the modern dance critic, who was also her champion, and he was the critic for the New York Times, John Martin, had insisted that, quote, movement in and of itself is a medium for the transference of an aesthetic and emotional concept from the consciousness of one individual to that of another. Through dance, Pearl Prim Primus lined the walls of the Jim Crow car, made palpable its confining nature, and then she resisted its constraint by leaping right out of it, by flying rather than riding. In these choreographed gestures, she embodied a very black paradox, one of forced confinement and mobility. If we think of the black experience in the diaspora being one of mobility, migration, dislocation, these ex populations have also experienced forced confinement in the forms of segregation, imprisonment, and enslavement. And black activists had been writing about the Jim Crow car since the 19th century. Du Bois, Charles Chestnut, um, the Jim Crow car becomes a major signifier of black people's second-class status. Ida B. Wells and Homer Plessy both file suits against segregated seating on public trolley cars. The Jim Crow car was the place to raise questions about class difference among African Americans. So she adds dance to this discourse and tries to reach a broader audience than any of the writers might have reached. Her joints bend in 90 degree angles. Her right knee bends. Calf, her calves form a line sometimes under her torso. Her left leg stretches out. She, when she spoke of her preparation for the Negro Freedom Rally, she told the Daily Worker, I know we must all do our part in this war to beat fascism. And I consider the battle against Jim Crow in America as part of that fight, which is taking place in the battlefronts of the world. Each one of us can wield a weapon against Jim Crow and fascism and my special one is dancing, and I shall continue to protest Jim Crow through my dancing until victory is won. So that's Pearl Primus. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any great action photos of writers because <laughs> <laughs> we don't move too much. <laughs> but there's Anne Petrie. Um, I'm going to talk through this section. Petrie uh, came, to, came to New York in 1938 from Old Sable, Connecticut. She was a fourth generation Yankee. Um, one of her ancestors had actually fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, so she moved to Harlem when she got married in 1938, and she started out as a journalist there, but quickly began writing fiction, which is what she'd always wanted to do. She wrote a number of short stories, and her most well-known novel, um, some of you might have read it, is called um, The Street. It was published in 1946. And I use The Street as a way to show how she uses her medium, which is literature, to um, talk about these questions about the limits of American democracy as it's practiced in the United States. So the um, street is the story of a young woman who separates from her husband. Um, she has a son. She ends up being a single mother. She works as a domestic servant in Connecticut. Uh, and then she travels home to her apartment in Harlem where she's raising her son. 
she is the most upstanding figure you could imagine. You would want her for your neighbor and you would trust her with your child. Um, she is upwardly mobile. She's trying to study to take a civil service exam so that she can become um, a clerk in, a, in an office rather than a domestic servant. And her idol, a person who, you know, she follows like a map, the book that she quotes all the time is Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, right? And she'll say, um, she'll, she'll, she'll buy bread and she'll say, um, I should just take out one of these rolls and walk down the street eating it. If, walk through the streets of Harlem eating it. And she says, yeah, but he was in Philadelphia in the 1700s and you're in Harlem in 1940 and maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, but she recites these mantra, mantras from Franklin, you know, and it's all about kind of being a self-made person in the United States. Um, that I just do like Franklin says, right? And she works for people and she uses them as her model. And they say, you know, this country, there's a lot of money to be made in this country. You just make money and you can have independence. And so her sense is very much informed by that. So that's Ludi's perspective. But then we have the narrator's perspective, the omniscient narrator's perspective, who knows that it's not going to quite be like that for Ludi, and not for a lot of Americans, but especially for Ludi as a single black mother particularly in Harlem, in a segregated society before Brown versus Board of Education. So what she does is she shows how at every moment, Ludi is thwarted, right? And one of the ways that she does it most successfully, have you even read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin? Okay, so do you remember the Huto? Does that sound familiar? The Huto is a kind of secret society, right, that Franklin joins of other men and they help, they help enable him to get out of his indentured servitude and basically start up his printing company, right? So it's not just that you are brilliant and a genius, which Franklin was, right, and entrepreneurial, but that there are these ways that opportunities are innate created for you. And Ludi doesn't have that. And just in case we don't get that Ludi doesn't have that, Petrie named Ludi's nemesis, Punto. <laughs> so not only is this secret society not going to help you, it's probably going to make it impossible for you to do what you have to do. And Punto is a gentleman who owns the building she lives in and owns the bar on her corner and owns the people who she thinks are going to provide her with opportunity. And at every step, he just undercuts her. I won't tell you the end of the novel. It's not a, it's a tragedy, but I'll say. Um, but it's worth reading. I hope you read it. In all of her fiction of the 1940s, Petrie gives us these very kind of upstanding working class characters who are in some ways engaging with the American dream or ideals of American democracy and always showing how those ideals will fall short in our nation as it was at the time. Right? And those are, it's her primary obsession and she does it primarily with women but also with men. Um, even with one man whose son is work is serving in the army, um, but he's serving in a Jim Crow army. So these questions are central to Anne Petrie as well. Um, she will eventually leave New York, return to Old Saybrook. Literary celebrity is a little bit too much for her. She's not. She doesn't want 15 minutes of fame. She doesn't even want 20 years of fame. She she thinks that that the kind of celebrity that I mean she could not have existed in the kind of celebrity world that we exist in now. She, she thinks that it was detrimental to her soul. And one of the things that she says is, she says, human flesh is a commodity. The human soul should not be. Um, and that celebrity turns the human soul into a commodity. So she will go back to Old Saybrook. She writes one, two other novels. And she devotes her life to writing children's fiction after that, including um, fiction on uh, one, one collection called The Ledge of Legends of the Saints, um, which is the only work where I think that she actually engages her Catholicism in her work for children. So, our final person, I don't have any idea how I'm doing on time, so. Um, our final person is Mary Lou Williams. And ordinarily, when I talk about um, black women's sort of ways of engaging questions of freedom and democracy, I do so through vocalists because it's much easier for us to engage the vocalists and we can hear their voices and we know what they sound like. Um, and one of my arguments is, is that that vocal tradition is often used at moments of national crisis, um, but also moments to celebrate the nation as well, that it almost becomes impossible to think of those times without 
hearing a sort of soundtrack that includes a black woman's voice. So a moment of crisis might be when um, the opera singer Marian Anderson isn't allowed, the, the daughters um, of the American Revolution won't allow her to sing in 1939 in their segregated hall, and Eleanor Roosevelt, who's a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, allow her to sing at Lincoln Memorial. So Lincoln Memorial becomes associated with an expansion of democracy, a fight against racism long before Martin Luther King right, is there at that iconic moment. It's Marian Anderson. Or um, during the first Gulf War, uh, when we're trying to kind of sort of rally our nation around this, you know, moment of crisis around the war, a moment of patriotism, the singer at the Super Bowl is Whitney Houston, who hits it out of the ballpark and wears a red, white, I, I think she wears an American flag tied in her head or something. But anyway, there are these moments where, um, iconic moments where we have a particular kind of black woman's voice associated with the nation, or Mahalia Jackson singing at the March on Washington. Over and over again, we see this. But I thought I would select Mary Lou Williams to end with for a number of reasons. One, because she's one of the women that about whom I write. And because we so often think about the vocal tradition, um, I'd like to also introduce you to very talented artists who are not engaged in the vocal tradition, right? Who are not only making their contributions as vocalists, like Phyllis Wheatley, Mary Lou Williams, too, was a child prodigy. She started playing when she was two years old um, by ear, sitting on her mother's lap and playing what her mother was playing on the piano. And her mother was so panicked by that, she dropped her. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but she continued to play, thankfully. She was professional by the time she was six. Um, she grew up in Pittsburgh. She was called the little, the little piano girl of East Liberty. There's a children's book about that. And she was on the road at age 12. Um, she would become, you know, one of the few women who would kind of break into the sort of pantheon of the jazz greats, not known by sort of a broader audience, but by people who love jazz, uh, you know, as an arranger for a number of swing bands. She, she wrote and arranged one of Benny Goodman's biggest hits, Carl Rollum. Um, she wrote for Duke Ellington. She played through every era of jazz until her death, um, from ragtime and stride and boogie woogie and bebop through um, the avant-garde before she died. So in the 1940s though, uh, I think we begin to see her get a theory of her own music as, um, and, and it's somewhat controversial with scholars now because she insisted that jazz was uh, an American music, she says, Africa and Latin America didn't have anything to do with jazz. Now that's just not true. <laughs> but she insisted that, right? That it was an American music. And I think one of the reasons why she was so vehement is that because she wanted to have the contributions of African Americans recognized, right, as central to our nation's culture. So African American music, I mean, jazz was central to American music. And she says that at the beginning, at the very center, at the foundation of American music is not just jazz, at the foundation of jazz is the music of the suffering of the enslaved. And so we go back to Wheatley where we started, right? And she says the spirituals, that's the core, that's the core, right? And then all throughout that tradition, she says, we have the blues. The blues are born of the spirituals, and the blues has given birth to everything else that is American music. That's her insistence. Um, and so she begins to write a series of long-form pieces. The first one is called the Zodiac Suite, which is performed in Carnegie Hall in 1946. Um, she said she wanted to play with jazz musicians and classical musicians, and she gets to do that that infuses her sort of notion of American music with kind of this basis in the spirituals and the blues through various forms of American popular music. And then after her conversion and her commitment and devotion to Catholicism, she begins to write a series of masses. Um, the first piece that she writes is called Black Christ of the Andes. It's for St. Martin de Porres. But then she writes a piece called Music for Peace which is now performed as Mary Lou's Mass, and if you ever get a chance to hear it, I hope you will. Um, and, but even there, she's trying to infuse the music with this sort of historical sensibility of what constitutes America, right? And that what's at the core 
of our identities, black, white, brown, Asian, every one of us, um, she says, is this relationship of black music to the world. She says that, um, that the gift of black music to America and to the world is that it transforms suffering into transcendent joy, right? That it takes something that starts into suffering and transforms it into transcendent joy. So I don't have a conclusion. Don't write your papers that way. I'm going to let Mary Lou conclude for us by playing one of her, um, this is her last recording. It's a live concert at Montreux, the Montreux Jazz Festival. You all are far more technically adept than I am. You can go on YouTube and actually see the performance where she, you know, they're, you know how they do, they'll take like a four hour performance and they'll give you 10 minutes of it for ever. <laughs> um, so you can actually see her performing this and I think it's really powerful to see her performing it, but at least we can hear it. What I'm gonna play is the beginning which is a medley, um, and she starts off with something that is kind of based in the spirituals, inspired by the spirituals, and she just takes us through, you know, that sort of starting in suffering. Even the spirituals herself, she says, that themselves end in transcendent joy, right? They're always sort of um, transcendent by the end. But she takes us through a kind of history of American popular music up to a certain point, starting with the spirituals and ending um, with something a little more contemporary, but not for us because we're 21st century people. <laughs> but we'll see. So let's see. Just play. Okay. Is that too loud? It's good. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to do that, but what I wanted to do is then now switch you to something that hopefully you will recognize. So you get that sort of beginning. And then this is um, going to a... American tune. <laughs> well, they're all American tunes. See if you recognize it. 
I'm too young to know that song. <laughs> You want to venture a guess? Not the people who definitely know it. <laughs> Back there, I saw that. <laughs> what is it? Somewhere over the rainbow. Exactly. It's the Wizard of Oz song, right? <laughs> exactly. So it's you know, and, and and the Wizard of Oz song itself is one of those sort of you know sad sentiment but something hopeful and transcendent and beautiful about it. So listen to Mary Lou a little more. Thank you so much. I'll take questions if you have them or comments or thoughts or whatever. Whatever you might have. Let's turn that down. Yes. Right. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. It's it's you know one of my I mean so Baldwin's um, "Go Tell It on the Mountain" is set in the church of his youth and his childhood, and and the cadences are very well. They're they're kind of a combination of the cadences of black church music and Henry James, right? <laughs> but um, but Sonny's Blues is sort of the secular side of that. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. One of the classics about um, brotherhood and and possibilities in the United States, all infused with the music throughout. Yeah. Baldwin is um, one of the things that I say about when I write about these women, they're all in Harlem in the 1940s at the time when he is a teenager and a young, very young man, so that the Harlem that we know through him is the Harlem that they're actually walking those and that they're writing about at the same time, although they're all, all of them are older than he is. Other thoughts or questions? Does anything, you know, if, if there's something that I didn't elaborate upon or, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there something deeply Right. So my title is in sound and word. Okay. Right. So um but I think that it's a sort of an ironic choice because she's saying in the beginning was the sound and you know she's countering it with the beginning of the word and yet we're reading her words, right? And so I think that you know she you know, she's always said that she was trying to do through her writing what the musical tradition had done. Um, and I don't know that she would still say that, but early on that's what she used to say. But I think I was really trying to just play around with sound. It's not just sound. It's sound that reaches more people, but it's also an engagement with the word as well. And with, with um, with Pearl Primus, who I'd never written about dance before, it's sound, word, and movement as w also. But I do think there is something about um, that the, there's a relationship between sound and word in that many of the writers, and I didn't talk about all of them, who will m take that moment of their kind of beginning, the beginning of their critical consciousness and their artistic consciousness, associating it with the sound of black women singing. Um, and they represent it in ways that we can never get to the original sound, right? And so that our only access to it is through their representation in word to what that sound sounded like, right? Um, and they're, I mean, there are just too many to mention. August Wilson, James Baldwin says that he um, couldn't access as a young man, he couldn't access that experience from that he writes about and go tell it on the mountain until he is in the mountains of Switzerland and um, in that essay, Stranger in the Village, and he listens to Bessie Smith records. And he says it's Bessie Smith's voice that turns something around for him and allows him to access the experience about which he's writing. August Wilson says it about Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey, too. Um, and it just goes on. And usually they're male writers. Um, so that there's a relationship between sound and word. 
other thoughts, questions? I, yeah. I guess, so, so two kind of unrelated. One is about what you just said, about mm -hmm. this, this question of um, black male writers and, mm -hmm. and their thinking about black women. Mm -hmm. um, I actually was just talking to a graduate student yesterday, and she's thinking about this period from slavery to civil rights. Mm -hmm. And I um, recommended Ernest Gaines's The Autobiography of, of Jane Jane Pittman, Pittman mm -hmm. as, as an example of exactly that, mm -hmm. where sort of a black male writer who was thinking about this really critical period right. and, and uses this fictional black woman, but mm -hmm. as, a, as a representative of this right. critical history. So right. It just, it sort of yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's right. interesting. And wi women, you know, when I think about women writers who, I think they less, they, they don't represent the voice as much as they see themselves as writers looking for foremothers, and the foremothers are most, are oftentimes black women vocalists. So they write themselves into a tradition that includes the vocalists, right, who can express things that the writers couldn't express. Whereas I think for the male writers, it is just that, is kind of representing the experience of someone who is not, it's not possible for them to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. And yet it is sort of the defining thing about what it is to be American for them, from Dunbar mm -hmm. all the way down, all the way down, yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, I think it's going to change because now we have um, sort of a political arena that is not fully open, <laughs> but more open to peop for people to express themselves politically and even to like run for public office or to, to, to become public figures in ways that they were not allowed to do before. But that, you know, both the sort of musical and the literary tradition is a way to express oneself as a political being um, prior to that. And, and I think that those, the work that they did, the work of freedom that they did was to open up those more public political spaces so that more people could participate, including black women, could participate in them as well. All people, Hillary, <laughs> any number of people. Can yes. We, can we go back to Phyllis Wheatley? Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about sort of her writing in the North and feeling like there's no way she could write what she wrote in the right. South. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that there were other writers, well, I don't know about mm -hmm. contemporaries, they were, but I'm thinking about. Right. So, um, well, you're absolutely right. She couldn't have written in the South because it was illegal to teach her to right. read and write. So the Wheatleys would have been in trouble for teaching her. Um, I don't know if she'd yeah. be that generous. Right. Probably not if she did. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think you're right. I think we have to think about the time. So her contemporaries, you know, David Walker comes along later on um, when things are really beginning to change. So with Wheatley, if we think about someone like Equiano with Wheatley, right. so what they're really arguing against at that point is, um, you know, they're arguing against the end of the transatlantic slave trade because that's what's inhumane. And you think about it, slavery is a ancient institution. There's like, in fact, there's like hardly any civilization where it didn't exist, right? And so Equiano in, says when he, you know, in his work, he talks about slavery in Africa and then what that's like versus what happens when he's sold. So I think that um, there's a different sort of public discourse about even what changing this institution might look like. And Wheatley and her contemporaries are far less likely to have the kind of militancy that we get when we get Walker, because by the time we get Walker, we're starting to get the beginning of a really organized abolitionist movement. Um, and certainly by the time we get Douglas, there's a full-fledged organized abolitionist movement, and that kind of thing just doesn't really exist for Wheatley. Um, so I think that's probably why she's much, um, well, there are a number of reasons why. She's much less militant. She's much less demanding. I think she thinks that she's not going to get a hearing, right, otherwise. And, you know, I think the fact that she's a woman has a lot to do with it, too. So she's got to have a certain kind of piety. Um, and it can be, and, and, and she, when you, when you think about it, she's, she's a child, right? So um, she might not even have the understanding of the condition of slavery when she's writing these poems that she even gets later on. One of the p 
pieces that I didn't read to you for time, I'll just read you quickly, is a letter to um, Samson Oakham, who was a Presbyterian minister, um, who was a Native American Presbyterian minister. And he and Wheatley corresponded. And she writes a letter to him. Um, let's see. Yeah, she writes this letter to him. She says, for in every human breast, God has implanted a principle which we call love of freedom. It is impatient of oppression and wants for deliverance. And by the leave of our modern Egyptians, I will assert that the same principle lives in us. Right? And so this is Wheatley as, a, as an adult. right? And we can already see her beginning to be a little more, not militant, but you know, just a little more forceful. And it might be because she's not writing for an audience of white readers, she's writing to to this Native American minister who shares her religion, but also her commitment to the abolition of slavery. Yeah. I think she's fascinating. I, I just wish there were more sort of primary sources to get to her, you know. Um, there's a great, there is a wonderful biography that's out, you know, someone who did extraordinary things with very little sources, few sources on her, so. All of these women, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, I hope you, YouTube, Google, Mary Lou. <laughs> and now you can actually, when I was writing this book, there was no footage of Pearl Primus dancing, which is why I had to work with those still photos. But you can actually find some footage of her dancing. So if you're up late or you're procrastinating from your papers, um, look them up on YouTube. So thank you. Mm -hmm.